Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running a record label. And we do so many different things and there's so many resources we have available and the different type of episodes that we've been doing throughout this past year and beyond and all the great things that we have planned. But it is so nice to just talk to record labels. That was the genesis of this project and it, and it really is the core it really is very exciting to just sit down and talk with a label owner who's been doing this for for a year or for 10 years or for 25 years today's conversation i'll be honest is probably one of um, the most insightful and exciting um, record label interviews i've done in in recent memory um, i'm speaking with trevor peterson of fire talk records and there is just a wealth of in uh, if, of wisdom here from Trevor. And so get out your notepads for this one because there are some best practices and some free advice and some tips and, and all sorts of good things in this episode that you're going to want to steal because I certainly have stolen it already from him. Um, this is a really, really informative episode and I hope that you find it really helpful. If you do, please let me know. Reach out. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me anytime at podcast at otherrecordlabels.com. And of course, if you're new to the show and, and um, you want to find out a little bit more about what Other Record Labels is, visit our website, otherrecordlabels.com, where we are a resource community for independent record labels of all stages and sizes. And we'd love to have you come by and visit and download some of our resources and check out previous episodes at otherrecordlabels.com. This is an exciting interview. Um, I, I'm just go ahead, listen. I I remember uh, some labels telling me, you know, especially labels that do their own mail order, that some labels telling me that um, sales were like physical sales were pretty good early in the pandemic. Like people were at home and needed stuff to, they wanted to shop basically, or they wanted music. Was that true? Totally. Yeah. Totally true. That's awesome. Um, we had a, you know, there was a, a, I feel like all e-commerce in general. True. But, um, yeah. It trickled down to music as well. And yeah, our physical sales were super strong for, uh, you know, a good amount of time there. I, they're, they're consi- continue to stay strong for mm. us. Um, there's a little bit of a decline for sure in the past few months, but um I it's hard to run analytics on it and determine whether it's the fact that we had some pretty big releases last year and this year due to the like the production manufacturing sure. delays etc our our release schedule is kind of like fanned out a little bit mm. in an uh, unintended way <laughs> right right <laughs> so, yeah that's kind of uh yeah but it yeah, I'd say in general things have been it's been solid for. Well, past. there's a there's a lot of the, the things that people had to adopt because of the pandemic that is is sticking around, you know, and and hopefully that that kind of um, hesitation to to buy a record online because maybe they wanted to save on shipping or they kind of procrastinated and thinking I'll I'll pick this up next time I see the band, you know. That obviously had to go away during the pandemic. So hopefully that's kind of here to stay is that people are just a little bit more quick to buy online. Yeah, totally. Um, we do have a bunch of bands that have been back touring pretty heavily now and um, certainly selling a lot more merch on the merch table than they ever have before. So oh, cool. That's been, yeah, that's An kind appetite of, we've had for to it. ship. Totally. We've had to ship you know, hundreds of records to random venues um, uh, multiple times in the past couple of months now. Is that nerve wracking? Um, I mean, not yes and no. Um, logistics are always nerve wracking. I feel like that's right. Um, yeah. You know, in the States here, UPS and FedEx are pretty dialed in. Okay. So, okay. That's um, good. You're not really, but there are some delays now that there weren't, Previously, typically when you ship ground, it's like it might be a day late or so. So I build that in to the shipping. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I'm I guess get it out early. Yeah. Logistics mind has like been kind of beaten into me over the years of doing this. So, <laughs> you know, try to keep it pretty uh, conservative when it I'm not trying to get people records like overnight to the sure. venue they're playing yeah, yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> 
Uh, it's been over 10 years since you started the label. Is 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 there a model, uh, you know, it kind of segues away from what we're talking about, but is there a model that works well for you when it comes to, you know, working a record and, and releasing a record? Is there a template that now you follow that, that you've created from your 10 years of doing this? Um, certainly. I mean, um, I, you know, in general, there's best practices that we've implemented across and systems that we've put in place across, you know, all of the facets of releasing an album, whether it's marketing or retail, et cetera, um, which has been developed over the years for sure. Um, I, I kind of uh, pause in saying it's like applicable, like cut and paste sure. to every release. Yeah, there's I get some, that you know, like certain genres, for example, perform differently in different territories, for example. So you have to tailor your plans and strategies to the particular artist, you know, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're working with for that particular release. So I feel like um, a, a somewhat dialed in adaptable system is what we have right. in place now. And yes, uh, to answer your question, it's been... <laughs> A work in progress for this is the thirteenth going into the thirteenth year, and wow. um, you know it's like I would say it hasn't like really fully formed until maybe just a couple of years ago. Now it's like it feels pretty good, but then again, the industry is constantly evolving and shifting. <laughs> right, and, right, right. You know, <laughs> certain partners ask for new things every. Yeah. other week it feels like so you're always adapting your systems um that's so funny you're talking about that because uh when you actually said fully formed and, and and thinking about this is this is what was going through my mind when i was on your website today and i was looking at all the releases and and the, the website i love it because it's it's simple it's black and white it makes room for the the records and it's very minimal and and uh, but then you have these you have merch and everything a lot of young labels or, or people wanting to start a label look at a label like yours and want to know how to get where you are as fast as possible. I look at your label, and to me, it looks like something that's been honed and, and come together over the years. Is is that true? That's very true. Um, you know, I started in my bedroom putting out seven inches with a big cartel, not even a website, you know, a oh, big right. car- and this is like 2009. So there's not even social media. Really yeah. I time. used big cartel back then too. Yeah. So big cartel, MySpace, you know, the yeah. label had a MySpace. That was kind of the, the system. Sure. So, um, you know, in that era, it was like way less involved in a way. Mm. Um, so yeah, start, start very, started very like, um, minimal and has branched out but yeah like the when it comes to just like uh, working on the brand and the presentation and the e-commerce and all of that it's it's certainly a work in progress and especially like this label is bootstrapped you know never taken Mm -hmm. any like outside investment or anything Mm -hmm. so it's like just been it's had to evolve over time um, a lot of late nights, et cetera. A lot of like reiterations on the website. It's right. like, it, you know, it changes year in, year out. Um, I feel like I got it in a good place now, but you know, I, it's, yeah. So what would you say to younger labels who want to get to a fully formed state as quickly as possible? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, there's multiple avenues to get there, right? Um, it's, you know, uh, get some capital in the door, get out and talk to friends and family and mm-hmm. maybe try and uh, scrape together a little, uh, you know, a little capital to sort of like make it a little easier and quicker. Yeah, uh, right, right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when it comes to, like, for example... Where the label's at now, we probably have like 20 subscriptions to things like Feature FM and like MailChimp oh, and our sure. e-commerce platform. And, you know, all of that like runs up. Like hundreds, of, hundreds of, yeah, hundreds of dollars a month just in those little things. Exactly. Yeah. And so, 
Um, so if you want to get there quickly, I think it's important to have all those little things. Um, but if, if, if it's really truly just bootstrapping it, I think, um, you know, my, my number one advice is just pay attention to what other folks are doing and, um, talk to people, you know, get out and meet people, whether it's through the internet or in real life that are doing this. Um, I know you have a a community built with, Mm. um, other record labels and that's, that's important, you know, just to like kind of bounce ideas uh off of sure. people who are doing it because when it comes down to it people that run independent record labels it's a pretty small community in the grand scheme of things yes yeah. so, <laughs> totally <laughs> you know what you've built the knowledge that you're like sort of providing is paramount and honestly to like uh fostering the community and in, in a way um so I don't know. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, that's like well, <laughs> my number one advice. Yeah, no, like, and it's funny you mentioned that because um, for me, I had I had started my label just a few years after you, around 2010, 2011 was our first kind of big year. And, and by 2017, I had been feeling like I was spinning my tires and just not growing as, as, as much as I had hoped to be. And not, I hadn't reached that fully formed state. And I was really jealous of, of labels like you and, and people, people that I was following on Twitter. And the solution for me was exactly what you said. And it, and it became this podcast, which was just calling up labels and saying, Hey, can you help me? <laughs> like, and everyone totally. said, yes, everyone said, you know, and, and learning from them. And so that's uh, that is that's exactly what I did, and that's great advice. Yeah, I think it's crucial to you know to not just feel like you're going it alone. You know, there's so much information out there. Um, yeah, absolutely. I want to sidetrack for a second because you talked about getting capital and getting investment, and uh, you know, and that's a, you know, it's such a a lot of artists think that we we could just do this and that the cream will rise to the top and we don't need to put in money but i mean any business even a coffee shop you have to buy a, a you know a cappuccino maker like anything any business yeah. it has a, a certain amount of investment if you were to put if you were to start a label today and put x amount in whatever that number is i don't care <laughs> what would you what would you spend it on what would you invest it on i mean you mentioned some of these third party apps that that are kind of inevitable but what would you kind of put a thousand dollars into or ten thousand dollars into yeah i mean i think the first thing is to prioritize the music and the artists so Mm. um because you you know you want to make sure that while the other things are important that the 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 music is is the first thing (laughs) people are going to want to connect with you know so it's like uh i would say um you know, put putting the first little bit into, you know, physical media is like antiquated as that sounds. Yeah. It's no, like, no. Yeah, you sure. know, press some records, you know, that's <laughs> like gonna, it's, it's hard to sort of like, um, uh, it's, it's hard to model like what the, the DSP stuff is going to do in the short term, mm. like over time for sure. Like with a catalog, um, digital revenue is key to growth mm. and for any record label. But, um, in the short term, like find an artist that, you know, you believe in, um, and, you know, tailor your physical release strategy to that particular artist, whether it's a local, local, friend who is in the same scene as you and um you know 150 people come out to their shows consistently locally sure that would be a good like first artist to sort of like invest your time and energy into because you know at even a 50 percent of those folks you know they bought a ticket the chances of them wanting to buy a physical piece of music are high sure and so maybe start there. Um, and then from there, I think it's important to invest it in, in your, your, your brand, you know, like a a logo, like get a proper graphic designer to, Mm -hmm. to help you with sort of the look and feel of your label because anymore, like how you present online, I think, um, goes a long ways. Mm. Especially when you're first starting something out, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, For sure. So, 
You know, as you said something that I, I found really interesting, because I, I was having a call today with another label, and we were talking about, and they were a brand new label and, and getting started, and and their their first release is going to be digital only, and then they had planned to do a physical down the road. And and I, was, I wasn't able to articulate actually what you just articulated, but I, I basically said that when you have a physical record, when you have a vinyl or a tape, and if it looks great, that really carries a lot of the marketing responsibilities right off right off the bat. It's just people uh, pay a little bit more attention, whether this is right or wrong, but people pay a little bit more attention to something physical in the real world. And you know, a lot of smaller lab- or labels who are getting started who don't necessarily have the capital to invest or even the time to wait a year to get a record, um, they they think, well, how much money can I make off of streaming? And I love what you said about how in the long term, streaming can be um, profitable from a, a, a back catalog perspective. Um, but in the short term, it's extremely difficult unless you get one of those elusive playlists. Uh, but that is a very uh, interesting way of looking at it uh, as to why um, physical is, is maybe important, especially in the short term. I'm sorry, exactly. I'm just having an awakening here. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally. Totally, yeah. And that, that the instincts as someone that doesn't have a lot of money to put into starting a record label would be like, let's keep the cost as low as possible. Uh-huh. But, um, you, you know as much as we all hate quote unquote capitalism um, and the, <laughs> the, the old, you got to spend money to make. Right. No, I think I lost you. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, 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 it's okay. I know. I, I, I yeah, you, you were, you were saying you got to spend money to make money. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's ugly, but it's true. That's, it's ugly, but it's true. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that's not to say that you can't have success uh, with a digital-only label. I just think that um, it's it's harder per- to predict. Like you know the the statistic of of the past year that I've been throwing around is sixty thousand songs get uploaded to Spotify right. every day. Yes. And that in the you know when it comes to starting a label and releasing digital only that's what you're up against good point. you're up against sixty thousand other <laughs> tracks getting uploaded every day and you know when it comes to dsps although the the editorial playlists are splashy and um you know feel good and can be helpful the algorithmic stuff is what's actually driving a majority of the streaming Yes, traffic and revenue. So, and in order to trigger sort of the the way that the algorithms are built, it's all sort of like reward based in a way. So okay. Get to ten thousand streams, trigger better algorithm. You know what I mean? Yes. So yes, all of this is available. Information is available online. Um, <laughs> but so I don't want to get into the weeds. No, I like, love it. That's what this show is for. It the show is about the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So, so yeah, just with that in mind, it's like, it's, um, you know, I think, and then another thing, you know, at the end of the day, like getting, going into creating a record label strictly to make a profit off the bat shouldn't be the reason why anybody right gets into it if they're getting into it from like a, a music loving perspective. There's plenty of people that invest capital and in, songs and there's the Merc Mercuriatuses of the world now going and all all of that. But like, you know, when it comes to an independent record label, um, yeah, sometimes the cream can rise to the top, basically to bring it full circle. Sometimes it can. (laughs) Sometimes it can. (laughs) Um, It's a running record label. Isn't like the, the best source of passive income. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so I wanted to, uh, you know, as we're talking about digital only and and, and physical, I, I'm skipping ahead in my questions because it seems to me like merch and physical records do play a big part in what you do. Is that true? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, sort of like just to to sort of give you broad strokes of 
the labels kind of like um, revenue streams, which sure. that's another important thing to touch on is the more revenue streams you have as a label, the, the more secure financially you're able to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the more predictable the future is. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, merch and, and physical music is a big part of what we do. And that mainly just comes from how the label started. Like we started in an era like when streaming wasn't a thing. And so the first releases were physical, um, physical only. I didn't even put them on iTunes, which in retrospect is, was a big mistake. Right. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that in the, in the beginning. It was well, like it was still, press records. It was still pretty arduous to put a record on iTunes back in 2009. It wasn't, I mean, it was getting easier, but. Totally, totally. We in two thousand since two thousand eleven, we've had distribution, so it kind of right. Okay, took care of that. But um, yeah, it was arduous. I, I, you know, I didn't even know it was arduous. To be honest with you, I wasn't even thinking about it. It was about the physical. I grew up mail ordering from Drag City, and like right. you know, like that was the world I knew. Going to the record store to get. The new music, like I'd read about a record in Spin Magazine and then go buy it at the record store. And that was my whole kind of system, you know? <laughs> and so that's all I knew. You know, it's, um, you know, it's funny. I, um, when you mentioned Big Cartel, I haven't thought about them in a, lo- a long time, and I'm sure they're still around. Um, they were certainly pioneers at the beginning. And I remember being one of the, one of the times I, when I, I think when I shifted from Big Cartel to, Bandcamp was because Big Cartel at the time did not have a um, a way to sell MP3s, and again, this was before streaming. So you were either selling a CD or a vinyl or an MP3, and they didn't have a platform for that. And they introduced something. I don't know if you remember this, but they introduced a digital uh, like app, and it was like a third party system as a way to sell MP3s. Because it's so funny, but like back in the mid-2000s, there just wasn't a platform for selling digital files like there absolutely is today. And and so I remember they introduced this thing, but then it, it came with like a monthly fee. And that was kind of frustrating because big cartel were taking a cut to begin with. And I just thought it would be another feature on their site. And then that's when, and then around that time, around 2009, 2010 is when Bandcamp kind of formed. And um, anyway, sorry, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, no, same story, same story. I was, we merged off of Big Cartel like as soon as Bandcamp came into the fold and mm-hmm. that was the the main, yeah, the main, the main web store after that. I don't remember that third-party uh, digital thing. Right. I think we might've been merged over to Bandcamp by then, yeah. 2010 is when we uploaded, started uploading to Bandcamp. Okay, okay, yeah, same. I, I, and I, so it must have been a little, just a little bit before that, or before I knew that Bandcamp was a thing, uh, because I was looking for some sort of digital commerce solution back yeah. then. But uh, to the makers of a big cartel, they uh, congratulations, you were pioneers, I'm sure, in some way. <laughs> Hopefully, they're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. I I have no idea if they're even still around. Let's go back. I well, I, I think ahead. they might be. I, I um I, I feel like I'm still on a mailing list, but let's go back to t- 2009 because I'd like you to to give us the Genesis story. Um, and, and you mentioned you know this this type of bedroom um, putting records together. So talk to me about forming the label in the very beginning. Yeah, definitely. So um, it's certainly not a unique origin story by any means um i was a musician playing in bands um and one band in particular woodsman was our band um and we the label i I say the label before the label was um we had uh a tour that we booked via myspace Mm. um (laughs) playing, you know, some DIY venues around the Midwest. We, I, we, I was based in Denver, Colorado at the time. That's where the label okay. started. Okay. Um, Lovely time. I moved to New York like a year and some change after the label started, brought okay. the label with me. But anyway, um, so this is 2009. Um, 
the early part of 2009 and we had this tour we had recorded like we were living in a band house at the time and we had a recording studio in the living room and you know we threw shows there etc so we had the capability to record our own record we made it and we made cdrs for the the mm. tour and um I was always interested in labels, et cetera, but I wasn't really sure how to go about like even soliciting, you know? Right. So like many other sort of labels, we just came up with a logo and put it on the back of the, <laughs> right. the merch. For legitimacy. Know, for legitimacy, yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally right. Not yeah. only is that not a unique story, that is the story. That is that's like the story. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what you have to do. <laughs> that's what you have to do. It was legitimate <laughs> legitimacy for sure. And then it was also like shortly after that, some friends and bands touring at the time were like, Hey, can we use that logo on the back of our oh, CD? really? Yeah. The second time that happened, I was like, actually, I should just how about I make your CDs for you? I'm gonna like oh. take ownership over this logo. And so people wanted to be a part of this collective because it was already a community. Because we were oh. throwing house shows and like, you know, like and so and like the other thing is I was pretty like in the blogs. So our okay. band, like I had gotten sent our music around to like stereo gum fader pitchfork and like woodsman got on pitchfork you know that year or something and like it was my friends were seeing that and they were like hey can you do i didn't realize at the time but they were basically asking me to do pr for their bands yeah and and put out their record yeah it's like okay (laughs) i i can do this the funny story about that is like back then the websites used to list a phone number of their offices. So to get a fader writer's email, I called the number to the switchboard and just asked for an email address and they gave it to me (laughs) and it worked. (laughs) Um, It seems like a simpler time as we joke about that, but it's, it was such a struggle like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a great time. I always felt like I was, Everything I was doing was so inferior to the real labels who who were who were making a thousand Glassmaster CDs. Totally, exactly. It's like sort of became this thing where we would go on these tours and then meet these people that are also in the community playing shows, and that would turn into like a seven-inch release or whatever. Right. Um, so that was all happening. My band went on to sign with Mexican Summer within like a year of. Um, oh fire talk starting and then i put out this band tennis who's still around friend great friends of mine their first seven inch and they went on to blow up um i helped you know get get them on the blogs and stuff and they went on to sign to fat possum like within a year of that seven inch so things were like taking off in a bigger way for some of us um and then the label just became as i was touring the label just became like a creative kind of outlet to put out cool music, you know, mm. press 12 inches with the whatever extra money I had from working my jobs and going on tour and stuff. And so... And so you were signed with Mexican Summer for, for a while while you were running the label? What was that we like? We did one record with them and then two records with a now defunct label. Um, and so mm. it was in, it was a good learning experience. Yeah, Honestly, I imagine. It, it, it taught me... Um, it basically made me like realize that I need to do this. I want to do this myself, you know? Okay. I I felt like, um, I was, I was learning a lot about, especially like the retail side of running a record label, because that's not something you're really tuned into when you first start and like how many barriers there are to like getting your records into the store, not only into the store, but featured in a place where people might actually see it and buy it. Mm. So, there was that aspect, but yeah, it was it was totally a learning experience to be on a label while releasing records. Um, yeah. Felt like I was very much just kind of in uh, record label indie rock like college at the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good way to do it. When if things got started in two thousand nine, and yep. you're in a band, people are are borrowing your logo to to do this. At what point did you and and, and of course, as you mentioned, you're 
you're doing these responsibilities that we now know are manufacturing, PR, uh, all these, you know, marketing, these different things that you didn't, you were just doing whatever you thought was right. At what point did you say, okay, I have to take this seriously. This is going to be a legitimate thing. At what year, at what year was, did you realize let's yeah, do this for I real? I feel like I was always taking it like somewhat seriously so i don't want to like discredit sure. those early releases because right. very early on like 2010 i pressed the first ten, uh like full-length record and like did a campaign around it okay yeah had distribution you know by then wow. through the contacts i was making play on another record you know, record label but it wasn't until like the band really stopped playing, honestly, like 2016, 17, that um, I was able, it wasn't about getting serious because I was in my mind, I was serious about it, but it was more about being able to allocate enough time to run okay. a legitimate business. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that took living in New York City where it's extra expensive just to live your life. Um, <laughs> it took many years to kind of get to that point where it was even possible for me to put in enough time to do it for real. That was 2017. The band stopped for that. I decided I wasn't going to like tour in a band anymore, basically. And that, um, freed up a lot of time as you can imagine. Sure. Sure. Um, and then at this, in the same year, like I want a bunch of life changes. I had, a, I had a kid and wow. I sort of like, um, the background of all of this, I went to film school, so I was working on movies and TV shows in the city. That was my day job. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I sort of had a realization in 2017 that, like, I need to I need to pick one. Oh. I'm doing these creative things, trying to make a living, but um, I need to pick one thing and focus all my energy into that. And so I decided in 2017 that was going to be the thing, signed a distribution deal with Red Eye, Wow. distribution and just did started making like some some strides towards uh making it a, a real business i formed the llc finally all that stuff <laughs> you know it was like years of just doing it rogue not yeah yeah proper <laughs> and um uh, then i would say it took another like two and a half years to kind of get it to a level where it was making enough revenue to to sustain myself and an employee and et cetera. So that's a very um, very big move to to quit a job, especially when you have a kid, and to kind of you know um, go full in on something. And, and for you to have picked one, I feel like you know in any business, I feel like that's kind of necessary. I think we all could do a lot of different things, but. Um, I don't think we can do them all at the same time. So picking one, that was a, probably a pretty big decision for you. Yeah, it was really scary. It yes. was really scary, you know. Um, I am privileged, though, that I have a partner who has always worked in corporate America and could kind of like, you know, hold down the family in that yes. respect. Yeah. So that's a huge privilege that allowed me to sure. kind of like focus a bunch of energy on this. Um, it wasn't easy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but no, it, for sure. It, um, I sort of like also that time, which may be useful to your listeners. Um, not only was it allocating time, but to doing the actual work, but it was allocating time to learn as much as possible. So you know, like your podcast, for example, I listen to it every, I had, you know, I listen to it all the time, like every new episode, I'm <laughs> an great. avid listener, um, <laughs> oh, That's great. but it's not just your podcast. It's like music business worldwide. It's yes. like, yeah. you know, getting involved in A2IM and sure. um, going to all of the industry functions and just absorbing as much information about the music business as possible. Um, and just keeping the ed like education, music business education being 20 or 30% of my work week is important. Wow. I think to, you know, to just understand, you know, understanding, <laughs> you know, like that's really good. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, obviously, you know, it's kind of what I do, but I, I was today, I was just reading a book on NFTs and I, I finished a chapter 
And I just shook my head. I was like, I did not understand any of that, what I just read. But I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of reminded myself, I was like, this is your job. Like you have to, like, you don't have to fully understand it. You don't have to be a guru, but like, you have to have a understanding of a lot of things in this industry. <laughs> I was just kind of coaching myself today. Totally. Yeah, that's the truth. And like knowing that what NFT means today is surely to evolve and be something different in five years, you know? Totally. Um, yeah. I heard somebody talking about fun instead of non-fungible tokens, like fungible tokens being the the future of the music business, because fungible oh. um, takes the scarcity out of, out right. of the digital token, you know? It's, right. It can be... Yeah, so interesting. <laughs> these things are going to evolve. So I know it's not. A, it's uh, it's important to stay on the pulse. To <laughs> yeah, no, I think yeah. that's really interesting that you said twenty or thirty percent of your week is was or is dedicated to to learning, and I I think that's such a great thing. And even if it's just you know business books or marketing books or uh, business podcasts, you know, um, you really yeah. it's part of taking it seriously. Exactly. Yeah. I listen to entrepreneurial podcasts, like, mm. you know, finance. I'm interested in finance, like all of Excellent. all of these different things that re apply back to running because at the at the core, this is running a small independent business. It just so happens that my passion is music. So that's what the business sells or whatever <laughs> yeah. you want to say it. Yeah. But yeah. Um the mechanics of running the business are the same as literally any other business. So. You mentioned something, and I want to kind of go down this path. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about multiple revenue streams, and I, I'm absolutely a huge believer in that, and that's something that is preached in any niche, not just in music, uh, but in, in, in any um, uh, you know sector of, of the business world, multiple revenue streams is so great. Can you let our listeners know a little bit of what type of revenue streams they should be looking for uh, as a record label? Certainly. Um, so number one is is D2C, direct to consumer. In the music business, we tend to call it D2F, direct to fan. Mm -hmm. um, and that is your web store, your band camp, digital and physical goods. That can be, you know, anywhere you get a, a record or a download to or a piece of merch to an end, you know, one to one. Yeah, right. Your right. your place to whoever's buying it. Mm -hmm. um, that is an important big source of revenue because there there's no no middlemen, you know, no yeah. middle people. You're you're getting max markup on that, so you should <laughs> really try to to make that as strong as possible. And then um, going down the chain, there's your distribution revenue stream. Um, ideally, it's physical and digital because the physical opens up avenues to get into independent retail, indie sure. record stores or Amazon, whatever. You know, Some people are ideologically against Amazon, of course, sure. um, which is totally fair. Um, and then there's the digital revenue that comes from your distributor, which is, um, you know, streams, downloads, et cetera, the DSPs, Spotify, Apple Music. Um, that is also a big driver, of course, because everybody listens to music digitally now. So mm -hmm. that's, um, you know, should be a high consideration. And then downstream from there, there's plenty of other, um, all, you know, other things you should certainly be looking at. Um, sound exchange is a big important one. Every label should be registered with Sound Exchange to collect um, what's owed on the master side of the recordings. Right. Um, for uh, you know, is sim simply um, you know the big one is satellite radio pays right. through Sound Exchange. Pandora. Pandora. Yeah, exact, exactly. Um, and then there's sync licensing, which is for us a big portion of our uh, annual Great. business. Um, so that is a lot harder to tap, um, but there are plenty of sync licensing agents or partners you can reach out to. And, um, and do you work with well, a, a company or a third party, or do you work with, through your distributor or your publisher? Ours, ours. 
ours is sort of like multifaceted because we are a publisher as well. Oh, okay. Um, and so we, but on the master side, we work with Terrorbird, which is a sync licensing. They do a, a number of things, publicity, sync. Uh, they have a publishing arm as well. Okay. And then they do radio promotion. Um, so that is a big source of revenue. And then there's a bunch of other like kind of, I don't want to call them random because as a whole, they're all important. They mm -hmm. might not be lots of revenue, but um, there are certain third parties that specialize in background music and retail environments. Like yes. you go into H&M and you hear a song, like you can partner with a company that will, you know, play your music and pay a royalty. Right. Basically. Very cool. Um, and then another big one for us is, um, is like in person say we do a lot, like we live in New York city. So we're fortunate to have a lot of access to like record fairs and stuff mm. pre pandemic. And now they're starting to come back. Um, and then, you know, we'll go, I was at, I had a table at pitchfork fest this year. I flew out and sold records there. And oh, like, so we, we tend to like do trade show type things as another revenue stream. Um, sort of also like a marketing thing as well. Yeah. Uh, of yeah. course. But there is, you know, we sell some records at those places. Um, so that's another one. Um, yeah. I get, I want to say the list just goes on. I could probably name like 20 different yeah, things. Yeah. No, and that's, but, that's amazing. What I love about this, and, and you talked about how it, um, you know, in times of, if one of them shuts down, then you have something else to fall back on. Um, but what I love about multiple revenue streams is it it almost takes the stress off of, you know, if you were to if you were to say, if you were to just look at streaming and say, I need to make, you know, I don't know, a thousand dollars a month or ten thousand dollars a month from <laughs> streaming, that's an insurmountable task for any startup label, for any label that's been around for 10 years. It's a very tricky thing to do. But to say, I need to make $100 here, $100 here, $100 here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, that, to me, it all of a sudden takes the pressure off of, of this task of, 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 of making a profit or, or earning an income is by saying, okay, just relax. We just need to make 20% of our revenue goals from this source and 5% from this source. Uh, that's what I love about multiple revenue streams. Yeah, it's great. And then it also like doesn't when it comes to A&R and like signing artists, you don't have to get too in the weeds with like, well, this artist performs this way on this mm. service. So we should be really considering that. You know what I mean? You right. can, you can, um, you can sort of tailor your uh, revenue strategy to each release based on where maybe that particular artist can excel. Mm. Um, and so it just sort of like, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, and so those revenue streams, the the pie, if you will, uh, the pie chart would look different for each one of your artists. You might have an artist that does really well on Spotify, and then another artist who does extremely well in H and M stereos, <laughs> but but not on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd say usually it's either yeah DSPs they perform well. It's maybe some perform really well selling physical records. Right. Um, over others, like there's you know, let's face it, like certain types of music stream better than others. And there's more placements and places to place like, you know, shoegaze over like noise music yes. or something. Yeah. You know I mean? Right. So, um, there's that. And then, yeah, maybe one artist, you know, is, is very syncable and we get five syncs in, in a year for that sure. one artist, you yeah. know, but zero for this other artist. Yeah. And, yeah, things like that. Um, what is your, I just want to touch on streaming a little bit, um, you know, especially, you know, when you have artists that might be left of center music. Um, and I, I know that you have a, a big emphasis on, on physical, but do, does your label have a strategy when it comes to streaming? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, we have I, just the broad strokes. Is, again, it's another sort of like system that we've built when it comes to streaming. I think that when it comes to streaming, like across the board, your best bet is organic streaming um, because 
if you you know if you if your artist can stream um from organically from real fans that's going to even improve the algorithmic stuff that's going to potentially be a pitch point where you can go back to the DSPs and say look people are listening to this shouldn't this be in this playlist and right. sometimes that works you know so um but like in general um I am a big proponent in following the best practices of the DSPs and all of this information is available. You can go to Spotify for artists and see what they want you to do. And yes, I know it's a pain to like learn all these things and they're changing (laughs) constantly. But um, I think in order to find success on streaming platforms, like in a broad sense, um, following the best practices uh, is is helpful, you know, I totally it's agree. not crucial, you know? Um, <laughs> so whether that on Spotify is like making sure your track has a canvas and your, right. um, you know, you're pitching via their pitch tool X amount of time in advance. Um, so there's that side of it. And then there's also, um, third party playlist pitching. That's part of our marketing strategy. So we, we do that for every track we release. Um, and you ju- have you just built up a um, your own contact list of curators? Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. Just like um, there are there are contact lists available, but they tend to be sort of I don't know. I yeah, I've always been a big proponent of like doing the work ourselves. That's right. So we've yeah. kind of spent the time yeah. <laughs> over the years developing our own list. So yeah, it's it's that, and then also you know, we hire out for PR on all of our releases and there's usually multiple folks working the releases um, that plays into streaming as well because a lot of the third-party playlists that perform well are tied to like NPR music or Pitchforks or Stereo Gum or, you know, right. tastemakers like that. So, yes, um, you know, just... Being in that ecosystem is helpful. Other labels, like we have friends that work at much larger labels than ours that we can like send a track to and they'll, you know, some, you know, throw it in their playlist. Sure. Things like that, you know, are helpful. It is remarkable how um, one thing can lead to another. And and I had a a track on a, a kind of a reputable third-party playlist that's very small, super hyper-curated. And when it got on this list, and I reached out to this person, you know, personally, and when it got on this playlist, it immediately got picked up by a much bigger playlist that's, that's I think, even owned by a major. And then it got picked up by Spotify and a few others. And I was like, wow, those people are watching his playlist <laughs> and yeah, let, definitely. and letting him do the hard work of curating and then <laughs> and stealing from them. That was really interesting. Totally. Yeah. Cause you imagine if you're working at a DSP and 60,000 tracks are getting ingested every day, that's a lot to weed through. Right. And like how, how do you, that's right. You know? Um, so that's part of it. And then another big thing that we, we do is uh, I have a chart metric account and I monitor analytics constantly and um sort of use those analytics based on how a track is performing to push marketing in other channels if something like catches you know Mm. so if you're catching a wave on spotify because of what you just described getting the playlist snowball effect that would be a good opportunity to create some marketing on socials and reinforce that and kind of you know create even more sort of like organic listens on top of everything that happened, you know? And I think you can drive sort of streams that way as well. It's like the inverse of of releasing a single campaign. It's like you release the album and then you see what people are responding to and then you put a campaign behind whatever song people are responding to. Yeah, totally. That happens to us all the time where like, you know, a track that wasn't a single performs the best over like, yeah. a six-month post-street date period. And then it's like, okay, maybe we should, you know, do, like, during pandemic times, it was like, let's record a live session of that track yes. because people are responding to that track. Absolutely. You know? so, yeah. 
I want to camp out on the subject of best practices just for one second, just for our audience, because what you've said is so true. It is so obvious, but so few people do it. But I had a, my own epiphany on it, and I, I, I can't remember who, where I read about it, but somewhere on a blog or, or maybe somebody on the show. But for any of these third-party companies, whether it's Bandcamp, whether it's Spotify, anywhere, or even Twitter or Instagram, when you're creating a profile and they have fields that you fill out, where you're from, what you're, who you sound like, all these things, it's in our nature to kind of be evasive or elusive and, and, and to uh, or mysterious and to um, ignore some of those things and not fill them out. And I, I, what you're talking about uh, how crucial it is to fill out some of those things, to upload a canvas, to do these things that we think it makes us look cool to not have a bio on Spotify. But what happened to me, I, a couple, I've talked about this on the show before, but I had an email from someone at Spotify and it was about a week before my album came out and they, and they said, can you upload a photo to your bio? Because you don't have a high-res photo in your artist bio and we'd like to use it for the cover of a playlist. And this employee said, in the future, make sure you've uploaded a current photo so that we can just grab it if we want to make it the cover of a playlist. And here I am like thinking, oh my goodness, I had no idea how important this was. And the same thing when we had Bandcamp, when we had Andrew from Bandcamp on the show, he was saying the same thing about how important it is fill out those things, upload a photo of your vinyl. And it's just so important. I'm just going on a, a rant here. I'm sorry. But it's so important to do these little things that we think don't matter, but they're there for a reason. Yeah, exactly. They, they very much matter. And, um, you know, they, it's, it's hard to sort of like know that, that Spotify uses those bio photos. They pull directly from there, mm -hmm. you know, how would you know that? How would you but, know? <laughs> yeah, but it's there for a reason, so you should probably do it. You know, you know what I mean. And um, yeah, it's it's all across the board. Like all DSPs have different best practices, and um, right now at Apple, it's Apple Music Motion is a big thing they're pushing. Okay, and, um, you know, like certain things um, when it becomes kind of an initiative at the service, um, it's it's good to know about that and do it because it's gonna, you know, well, it reflects it reflects the fact that you're listening to you want to be a good partner. That's you're right. listening that's to right. what they're asking, and you're you know interested in being a good partner. Well, so. you mentioned uh, Spotify. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the feature uh, Canvas, and yeah. Uh, you mentioned that, and um, I, I'm, I'm stressed out right now as we're talking because I'm like, I haven't done any of those. I don't even know how to do them. But now I'm thinking that goes totally against my own ethos of, of making sure I follow the best practices of these platforms. I'm like, why haven't I just done something? And it's so crazy because that system, I mean, I knew somebody who was beta testing it in 2019. That the canvas was a huge initiative by the company. And for some reason, and they, and they know what they're doing. They think that this is an important feature. And for me to not do it is almost like disobeying the boss. <laughs> you know what I mean? As yeah, crazy as exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of caution going down that route of thinking too much because, um, I think there, there's important in creative kind of, uh, uh, creative, uh, I don't know, decoupling from the kind mm. of like, uh, uh, what the music industrial complex or whatever in a certain way. But, um, so I don't want to say like, if you don't do these things, you're not, things aren't going to happen for you. Right. That's not always, <laughs> that's not truth. always true. Yeah. 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 But it will increase your chances if you're game. And I think that, um, yeah, something like Canvas is, you make a good point about the fact that they spent X, you know, <laughs> X amount of money developing that with their, you know, over a course of years. So it must be important to them. Sure. And therefore, whatever the reason is, um, you know, it might be 
might be beneficial to participate. Um, <laughs> the one thing I will share about Canvas, which um, I think is public knowledge, but um, views on Canvas affect the algorithm. So that's just something that um, we do to well, that's right, make sure it, that that stat is in, in our kind of like in there. It, it, it is in Spotify for artists too. You can see there is exactly. now, uh, yeah, there is a views section. Yeah, that's crazy. everything in Spotify for artists. There's now an analytics tab. All of that is basically them telling you what's important to that, their uh, algorithm. Yes. So you should pay yes. attention to that. That's right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This is, I'm, I'm running out of time here because I, I have to, I have to cancel some of these questions, but this is all very important. I, I actually, when you're talking about Apple, I, I have been, I would love to, uh, to be able to do a, uh, a record in Dolby Atmos. I think, I think if you could, I mean, only super rich people can do that right now, but if you could have an album mixed in, 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 um, surround if, if with, with that, that, uh, you know, uh, follows their standards for Dolby Atmos, I think that would be a, a good way to have your album featured by Apple. Totally. I agree with that. I also think on the flip side of that, it, it I'm curious, like my take is some of the onus should fall on Apple Music, Apple, a multi-billion That's dollar right. corporation to develop a hundred percent a tool that can, I'm sure there's a way to develop software that can turn a stereo recording into an Atmos recording, even if it's like not official perfect yeah yeah or i think would be yeah i mean or even the very least as a way to turn stems to take eight or ten you know your your drums and your your keyboards and and your vocals separated in that that, way that's the way i think like just submit your stems maybe it's eight channels or something and they turn it into (laughs) yeah an atmos for you that's probably coming yeah that's probably but you're right they're a they're a, a billion dollar or trillion dollar company. Uh, I shouldn't be the one who has to to license the software and, and to get up the the good version of Pro Tools. <laughs> yeah, that's my one critique right now. It's like they're prioritizing Atmos stuff in their editorial ecosystem, and it's yes. really cutting out those of us that's that right. can't afford it. Yeah, totally. Um, how do you? I I I, I got to move on because I want to. I have a couple of questions for our our our. Um, our patrons, but I want to ask you in closing, how do you, thinking back to the beginning of starting as a band, and, and I've loved this conversation, by the way, you are um, very, very astute in this business, and uh, I've this has been phenomenal. How do you balance the, the passive existence of an artist and the business acumen needed to be a label owner? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll go back to education again, because there was a point when I did not have that foundation of knowledge to be able to call myself a label owner. Mm. You know what I mean? It was some years of like transitioning from being a musician, learning along the way, seeing the inside, and then getting to a point where, um, you know, where that was a reality. So yeah, I think that's just it. It's like always staying curious and, you know, and on top of it. And, you know, at my core, I've always been entrepreneurial. So that helps too. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, you must have, you must have had something back in 2009 that you were not just a musician in a band, but you also knew, hey, we should send this to Pitchfork or I should phone the phone number uh, of a magazine on the website. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just comes down to being able in that time to reach as many people as possible with the music, you know, was always the the number one goal. Um, And I think that's still very important to this day, working with artists. We want these, we want to reach as many ears as, as possible with all of these releases. So where did that come from? That entrepreneurial spirit is that was that in your DNA as a as a kid? Yeah, definitely. My dad's self employed, um, hmm. so I had that background. Um, my mom was a reporter at a newspaper, so she oh, was cool. always out roaming around, like getting the scoop <laughs> yeah. or whatever. So, um, yeah, um, and then I I was in like business entrepreneurial shit as lame as this sounds club in high school oh I, like, that does sound lame <laughs> yeah very, that's very um, cool very though. <laughs> um, 
Um, and then I was playing in punk bands and like that was kind of the and skate I was a skater, you know, and wow. like that whole world is very just like anti establishment. So I was always just like F the man. I don't want a job. Yeah. Why do I want a boss? That's a, that sounds like it sucks. I want to yeah. be my own boss. You know? Yeah. So, oh, that's all great. this combination of things. That's awesome. Well, well, listen, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. Thank you so much. If you have a second, I have a couple more things for our patrons. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. If you want to hear my extended interview with Trevor, go to otherrecordlabels.com slash Patreon to become a patron where you can get all of the bonuses for our listeners. Also go to firetalkrex.com. That's F-I-R-E-T-A-L-K-R-E-C-S.com. And be sure to visit our website, otherrecordlabels.com, where we have helpful resources and tools for independent record labels and independent musicians. Thanks for listening.